Uh, I want to continue on uh, the theme from last night. By the way, wasn't last night's talk just fantastic? That was so powerful. And uh, I think set the tone beautifully, set the tone beautifully around this theme. I want to, to take that theme and I want to increase the strength of the language. So I don't want to just talk about freedom. I want to talk this morning about freedom from curses. So I think that one of the most neglected themes in the Bible is the theme of curses and blessings. And we get nervous about it because of prosperity thos- uh, the prosperity gospel and wacky theology. But I want to argue these are central themes. So I want to tell you the first time I experienced the reality of the curse in my life. When I was 17, I became a Christian in the middle of a... It was actually the Toronto Blessing. Some of our pastors had gone to the Toronto Blessing and then they brought that back to Australia. And you know the stories of how that went around the world. A pastor goes, visits the next Sunday, they stand up and instead of preaching, the entire church falls over. And that sort of thing happened at the church that I was a part of. And so I was a Christian for about two years. And at that point in my, at that point in my life and my discipleship, I just, I felt hungry to go to a church that just basically just taught the Bible verse by verse. I'd heard rumors that churches did this, and I thought, man, if you could take the power of the Holy Spirit and you could integrate it with just solid Bible teaching, that felt like the goal of the New Testament, power and theology, word and spirit. And so I went and saw one of my leaders at that particular moment, and I said to him, hey, look, I just wanna say thank you so much for your investment in my life. You've profoundly impacted me. I'm really grateful. I just want you to know I'm gonna be leaving and I'm gonna be attending another church. And this ended up being one of the most painful meetings I've ever had. So I was doing my best to leave on good terms. I had a spirit of humility and not arrogance. I was honestly trying to show honor to those who had imparted my life. But I don't know if it was the amount of criticism that they were going through at that particular moment based on what was going on or, or what else had happened. But the leader sat me down, came to my workplace to have this meeting, and then sat me down and said this, John, I want you to know if you leave our church, the hand of God will leave your life. If you leave our church, you will not amount to anything and you will spiritually wither. And I just remember as a a 19-year-old young man, still a teenager, just asking myself the question, what what does it look like to wither? What does it look like for God to withdraw his hand and you to be left on your own? And I came away from that that meeting and I put a pretty strong face on, but after that meeting, I just sat there weeping. I remember just thinking something, another force has entered my life here. There's something I have to contend with. Something's taken root in my soul that I cannot shake and I can't make sense of. And I would articulate that that is the force of being cursed. That is what, when we read the scriptures, a curse is. And I think a lot of us, if we were to be really honest, we labor under the force of the curse. We're familiar with it theologically, but we don't have some of the language to articulate what's actually happening in our souls. And so if we're not careful, we will spend our lives striving for blessing to undo the effects of the curse. So I had no idea how much this was gonna impact my ministry. I, was gonna have, I had no idea how much this was gonna impact my marriage, the kind of parent that I was. But these were these two forces within me, this ache for blessing and the reality that I had been cursed. So this started me on somewhat of a theological journey to try and get free from this and to make sense of these sort of subterranean forces that were happening in my heart. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you some of my theological journey, and then I want to end by making this extremely practical about how we become the kinds of people who release the blessing in favor of God wherever we go. So let's have a look at this. I want to just ask three questions. What's blessing? What is biblical blessing? Why do we need blessing? And then how do we get really, really good? How do we get a black belt in blessing people wherever we go? So number one, what is the biblical concept of blessing? So I've put together two theological definitions of blessing here. The Old Testament word blessing comes from the Hebrew word barak. This means to speak the intention of God and to be happy with where you are. The New Testament uses two words, makairos, where we get the concept of happiness, and the Greek word eulogia, from where we get the word eulogy. Eulogia means to speak larger or well of, or to speak the intention and favor of God on someone. Just as eulogies are tailor-made, so are blessings. When we talk about blessing someone on a practical level, we are prophetically stating, may God's full expectation for you be fulfilled in your life. And we know that God's intentions for people are good. Dallas Willard simplifies it and says this blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. So I first experienced the need for blessing uh, when I was 21 years old. I'd come to the United States uh, to study theology and I hadn't planned to meet an American woman or marry an American woman. And I'd been in the country two weeks and I went on a walk with a girl by a waterfall and I came back and I was like, it's game over. <laughs> so I call my parents, I call my parents and I say, I think I've met the girl I'm gonna marry. And they're like, John, you've been in America two weeks. You might wanna give it a bit more time. And I was like, no, nah, it's on, it's on, nothing you can do. <laughs> so I had to go and meet my future father-in-law and I'm very, very nervous. And what was I after in meeting my father-in-law? I was after his blessing to marry his daughter. Because I knew that if he didn't bless this marriage, if he didn't bless our union, I would deal with opposition. That on that day it would be very, very strained and that going forward every holiday and the birth of our children would be marked by angst and pain. And so I was seeking blessing. And that was what I was hoping. I was hoping he would project goodness into our marriage together. And that's what it means to bless someone to project good, to, for God's full expectation, for God's full purpose to be realized in the life of another. We were born for blessing, we ache for blessing, and there's so much power in blessing. So the biblical concept of blessing is this prophetic projection of the goodness and purpose of God, all his full intentions for them to reach their redemptive potential in every area of life. So if that's what blessing is, why do we need it so badly? Well, I, I wanna contend that we need it because we were created for blessing. We read these Genesis accounts and we get so familiar with them that we miss these really pertinent details. And I think that at our cultural moment where there's so few theological explanations for sin and there's so much angst at how much cultural change is happening in our world right now, people can often try and figure out you know, why can't we just tell our world how sinful they are? But when we start with sin, we don't start where the Bible starts. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter one. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So what did God do before they did anything? So God blessed them. The first human experience of life was that of blessing. God blessed them before they were given an assignment. God blessed them before they had a role in the world. God blessed them before they'd accomplished anything. They started with blessing. 
And so out of that, they're called to fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we need blessing because we were created for it. And to live an unblessed, unblessed life is to live against your created purpose. So we know that what ends up happening now is that Satan comes along and he offers this age-old lie, and here's the basic lie. God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. There's blessing he has, and he's, and he's not gonna give it to you. And the enemy's lie is, trust me, blessing comes from me. But this is not what happened. As a result of them saying, we choose to step out of your favor, God, and we choose to step into the power of our, our own hands, another force entered into the human story, and that is the force of the curse. Now, we use the term theologically, the fall, which is kind of, you see someone fall over, and you're like, oh, the curse gets a little more to the heart of it, I think, which is instead of having God's blessing, instead of having God's purposes and his good intention, we now live under God's judgment. This is my definition of the curse. Rejecting and resisting God's intentions resulting in disfavor and displeasure and now dysfunction and destruction. And doesn't that in many ways articulate the world we live in now? It is a world resisting God's intentions. There's disorder, disfavor, displeasure, dysfunction, and destruction. And so we, God, we see God begin to articulate a theology of the curse. We see this in Genesis chapter three, and he just curses three areas here. I want you to see this. So he curses Satan, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. And he talks that because of the curse, there will be pains in childbearing, and they'll be very severe, which some of you can bear witness to. And there's gonna be the curse on the ground, and so our work and our labor will now experience this horrible word, futility, labor, toil, futility. The effects of this curse then are baked into our human relationships, they're baked into satanic opposition that'll be in the world coming against us, and into our labor. As image bearers in the world, we're now frustrated. We don't work with God's favor, but we have to work in spite of it in the world. And so if this then becomes sort of the foundational reality and there's a great separation between us and God, you begin to see, I think, in the scriptures, the effects of the curse shape and impact everything that happens. So I wanna articulate some of the ways that maybe the curse is in our world or maybe you've experienced the fruit of the curse in your own life. One way is through the curse of generational sin. Curse is being passed from one generation into another. We see this in God's warning in Exodus 34. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, not forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. One generation experiences some sort of rebellion or dysfunction, and then it gets transmitted into the next generation. Well, I, I did get the blessing from my father-in-law, and I did marry that woman, been married 20 years, blows my mind. And my first year of marriage, I just thought this was gonna be amazing. Just thought it was gonna be just like the best thing ever. I just thought that we would just have sex all the time and that we would never fight. And I thought that at an appropriate point, we'd make lots of money and have great kids and just enjoy our lives. 
When you fall in love, psychologists tell us that the brain produces a trio of chemicals that basically are as addictive as heroin. And so when I met Christy Keep, my, my brain just, it was an onslaught. I was literally drug addicted to this woman. It was incredible. It's the, the level of emotion I felt. I mean, I just would look at her sometimes and weep. Just so much love. And then psychologists also tell us that after a period of time, the brain ceases to produce those chemicals that make us feel addicted to people. So when that wore off for me and that wore off for her, we were left with two very broken young people. We started wrestled with not just our stories, but the stories of our immediate families. These stories included imprisonment for statutory rape, imprisonment for murder, sexual abuse on, on both sides, sexual abuse in our own lives, verbal abuse, borderline neglect, horrific treatment, suicide. All of these things were hovering above our marriage, making their way in. And we had no idea the impact that generational sin would have in our lives. And it was just, my wife would say, our first year of marriage was functional hell. We just, we just had, we had no way to stop the onslaught of generational sin and dysfunction in our lives. We had no coping mechanisms. We had no defenses against it. And as a result, we were destroying each other because they were the first up close mirror of our dysfunction and our brokenness. And so we got so desperate, man. We did a Neil Anderson bondage breaker. I did every book about curses, blessings, and all that stuff. And we would have these meetings where we would go out to the park. And we would spend whole nights just reading these books, reading these promises over our lives. And then when my wife got pregnant with our son, Nathan, it was like, okay, man, we gotta break this stuff off. Because if we just continue like this, he's gonna be born into a story where we unintentionally just pass this down. The curse of generational sin. Have you felt that? That a factor in your life? Another factor that the curse impacts or another way it shows up is just in our own personal sin and rebellion. We, it's not just that we blame Adam and Eve. We feel this same temptation ourselves. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So some of us experience the curse because we don't trust God or we're so wounded or we've, we're, we give in a temptation. And there's a call, there's possibility in our lives and we forfeit that possibility by consciously sinning. This can be the area of sexual sin. This can be the area of financial sin. We can develop a reputation as a liar. This can show up in the workplace. This can show up when we date people. This can show up everywhere, but we consciously make decisions in our own story and we trade the promise of God's blessing when we wanna get it back, we're often unable to. We're stuck with the consequences and the heartache of our sin, generational sin. 
personal sin and rebellion. And sometimes this is something that's done to us. Like what I experienced, there's curses that are spoken over us by others. These are things like this. You'll never amount to anything. You're a failure. You're fat. You're ugly. You're a loser. These kinds of words get spoken over us sometimes when we're young and they, stay, they shape us. They get in our hearts. John Orberg says this, I used to think that cursing someone meant swearing at them or putting a hex on them, so it was pretty easy to avoid because I didn't swear much or do hexes. But as I realized how wrong I had been, you can curse someone with an eyebrow. You can curse someone with a shrugged shoulder. I've seen a husband curse a wife by leaving just the tiniest delay before saying, of course I love you. The better you know someone, the more subtly and cruelly you can curse them. These, these things that are spoken over us can have tremendous power. I had a friend, still do, who was an incredibly successful um, entrepreneur, a woman, and just, just had a, a miracle story. Everybody, uh, she just started something from nothing and it just scaled up and to the right and everybody was writing about her and Christians loved her and the world loved her and just this incredible ascent to power and privilege. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, she made a series of moral mistakes that were just extraordinary that you wouldn't think a person of that level of competence and success could actually make. And this, this platform of, of just prestige and honor just sort of crumbled underneath her and she just fell. I remember talking to her and just, just asking, hey, what happened? What happened? And her response was just extraordinary. She said, well, listen, when I was little, my father used to say to me all the time, you're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly. No man is ever gonna wanna be with you, you're ugly. She said when she got to college, she realized that she was actually quite beautiful. And if you were to see, you would say, that is a beautiful woman. And so she said, in college, I realized that men were attracted to me and I began to use sex and my sexuality as a way of feeling good about myself. I wanted to prove to my dad, you're wrong, men do want me, I am attractive. And she said, I guess that I still had a lot of that in my system, and when all the press, uh, pressure and stress from this organization was on me, and she said this phrase, I guess my dad's voice was just still the loudest voice in my head, and I felt like to medicate what I was experiencing, I had to go back to the source of my wound. What's the loudest voice in your head? Underneath all the activity, underneath all the like biblical answers and theology, under all of your leadership paradigms that you give to younger leaders, what's the loudest voice in your head? You see, if we're not careful, what will happen is that these curses that enter into our lives, they wound us, they create lies, we look to idols and then we become addicted to managing the wound. Now, a wound is a horrible thing. A scar is, is beautiful because a scar says that something happened but it's been healed. Flesh has come into it and you can touch it and there's a story of healing there. It's not painful. But a wound, if you go near a wound, immediately you'll feel pain that's connected to it. If you go near a wound, immediately your, your, your fight instincts will come up to push away. And many of us are walking around and underneath our veneers of success and underneath our happy spirits and underneath the ministry times and the great moments, there's these wounds where there's certain areas. If you say a person's name, if you mention a certain date, 
if you bring up a certain experience, sometimes if you even bring up a certain church, these are fighting words. These are words people around you know, don't bring that up. These are things that you defend. We can experience wounds in our souls. So this is what I realized had happened to me. I had a wound in my spirit in ministry. And I guess everything I was doing in ministry as a pastor, so much of what had driven me, and I never would have consciously identified this until I really got into trying to study it, make sense of it. But I had a wound in my spirit, and here's what that wound says, the hand of God will be on me, I will not wither, I will accomplish something, you my friend will be wrong. And something in my spirit just had a spirit of striving in it. I was like, I'm gonna overcome that curse that's been placed on me And the only way I knew how to get it was to earn blessing, to prove blessing, to prove the person who had cursed me wrong. And I had no idea how much this was impacting my life, my family, my ministry, those close to me. John, why can't you just relax, man? And I couldn't answer that. But the truth was, I gotta prove that I'm blessed. So the good news of the scriptures is that God has not abandoned the human race to the curse or to the effects of the curse. Almost as soon as this is unleashed as a force in the world, God begins a counterforce of blessing. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, and this is the point where uh, Abraham is given his job description as a patriarch of our faith. This is what it says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. What an amazing verse. So if you just sit down with Abraham and say, hey, look, um, tell me about that profound covenantal encounter you had with God. What, what do you think he wants from you? I think Abraham would say, well, I, I've just been given this job description, and it is basically that the world will be blessed through me. In fact, the children of Israel were given an identity of blessing. And sometimes we read this at at weddings and events like that, but that's not really what it's designed for. Listen, Listen to what it says here. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. So they had an official blessing. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So you can imagine that. Where are you going, mate? Oh, I'm going to uh, the meeting. What are you doing? Just going to get blessed. So you would stand there and they'd bless you and say, thanks for that. And off you'd go. You had a blessing identity. God's putting his name on you and with his name comes his favor, comes his blessing. And then don't we see from this point on the children of Israel basically struggling to live between blessing and curses. This is basically the story of the Old Testament. I'll bless you if you do this and you'll live under the curse if you don't do this. And this is like the Old Testament. Actually, it's more like this. Just moments of blessing. But then God in his kindness comes along and sends his son Jesus and Jesus' message and Jesus' mission, though we often don't see this or think in these terms, is really about exchanging the curse for blessing. Look at what it says in Galatians 3 here. This is the Apostle Paul who's trying to get to the heart of what has actually happened on the cross. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating 
cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. And why does he say that? So that the, the blessing that was given to Abraham might come to us through the promise of the Spirit. Now look, that verse will preach. Because on the cross we think he's taking away my sins. Yes, he is. But he's also doing more than that. He is taking away the curse and its effects and he's replacing it with blessing. I don't know if you've ever studied the end of the book of Deuteronomy about the covenants and the blessings. And we, we so often think about sin primarily just in terms of what we've done rather than the biblical framework of the law that Jesus was under. And if you look at the law, and the curses for disobeying the law at the, book of the, at the end of the book of Gen, uh, Deuteronomy 28. It's awful. It's horrific. But then if you look at the blessings, they are staggering. They start with, you'll be blessed in the country, you'll be blessed in the city. Now I live in the city and I have a place in the country and I'm like, everywhere in between is the blessing of God. And we forget this theologically that because we're united to Christ, because we have his imputed righteousness, we are no longer under the effects of the curse, but we have his active obedience credited to our account. We have his blessings in our account. This is an extraordinary, and this is where where the prosperity theology, which I don't love, is onto something. It's onto something that we have neglected is that God's heart for us is that we would be blessed, that we would experience and live under everything that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. So this is what theologians call the great exchange. So here's an example. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we may be made righteous with his righteousness. Jesus died our death that we may share his life. Jesus became poor with our poverty that we might inherit his riches. Jesus bore our shame that we may share his glory. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance as children of God. Jesus became a curse that we might walk as a blessing. Now in America, if I was in a Pentecostal church and I preached that, people would be like, come on. Because that is some proper theology about what God is doing on the cross, the great exchange. He took all of our sin, all of the curse, absorbed it in himself. Our sin put on Jesus, punished in our place, and now we receive his righteousness and his blessing as a gift. This is the great exchange. And so just like Adam before he'd done anything was blessed before he was given his mandate, we as disciples are blessed before we do anything and are given our mandate. Look, look at what happens at the end of Luke 24. A lot of people there have their favorite closing of a gospel. A lot of people like you know, Matthew because of the Great Commission and all that. I appreciate Matthew, but really at the end of Luke's gospel, this is where it's going on. Have a look at Luke 24. I don't know if you've seen this. This is Jesus at the end of his ministry and he's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father where incidentally he will be filling the universe with himself. So I hope you've got a big enough vision of what he's doing with the ascension. But look what it says here, Luke 24. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Listen to this. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. And I don't know if he went up, so I was like, Bless you, bless you, bless you. And he's like, bless you, bless you, blah, 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 and he just got so small. Or I don't know if he sort of faded out where it's like, bless you, bless, and he just like faded into another realm. But either way, the last image the disciples had 
of the resurrected Jesus was with his hands raised over them, blessing them. What a vision. What a vision of ministry. And so what do they do? They go to the temple continually praising God. And you imagine all the persecution those disciples went through, scattered all over the world. You've got to see them in prison just saying, he was blessing me. He was blessing me. This is from blessing, not for blessing. The direction of blessing has been reversed. And that's why when Paul lays a foundation in the book of Ephesians, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So whenever the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, I talk to the Mormons and they're like, hey, can we talk to you about the true gospel? I'm like, hey, look, look, have you got a Bible? Let me just ask you a question. Have you got Ephesians 1 in it? Yeah, let's go there. And I pull it up and it says, now look, according to what I believe, it says right here that I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Can you improve on that? Or tell me the truth, do I have to earn something from your religion? Oh no, I'm good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going with grace. I'm going with every spiritual blessing is a free gift. And I always say to him, if you're weary, you can have it. Anyway, have a great day. Just <laughs> sowing doubt into their legalism and self-righteousness. In fact, I think that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry on earth could be summed up by one word, blessing. Christ is walking around blessing people. So if if the curse, if, if blessing is God's intention for our life, yet we experience the results of the curse and we need blessing, to live in God's redemptive purpose for us, purposes for us. How do we get good? How do we earn this black belt in blessing other people? Well, a few things. John Albeck says this again. Blessing and cursing are not compartmentalized Bible words at all. They are simply the two ways that we treat people. They are as inseparable as breathing in and breathing out. So the first way we get good at blessing people is with our speech, it's with what we actually say. Listen, in, in the context of what we talked about, what it says in James chapter three, with the tongue we praise the Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So we should use our words to bless and not to curse. Proverbs 12, 18 says this, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You ever been around someone who just throws off comments and just like, ha, 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 and they're like, oh, you're just like, oh, what was that? Come out of a staff meeting, you're like, oh my goodness. It was the NHS, I need help. You can imagine, if you've been, you know someone who's like this, they just wound with their words. When I was dealing with all of this junk in my soul, I realized I just began to observe my behavioral patterns and my speech patterns with my family. And I just, I couldn't believe what was coming out of my mouth towards my wife. So I had to have this very, very heavy moment where I, I sat my wife down and I said, look, I wanna have a meeting. This is, this is gonna be a hard meeting for me. And we sat down and I just, I, I consciously came up with a list of all the things over the course of our marriage that I could think of that I'd said against her. And I just went through them all and I said, this is not true, please forgive me, this is not how I feel about you. And I try to replace it with the blessing. And you know what she did? She just sat there weeping. She said, 
this is a great meeting. This needs to become a lifestyle. <laughs> Which tells you everything you need to know about my wife. I had to sit down with my children. I had to sit down with my son and just say to him, Nate, I wanna to talk to you. And he's like, what have I done? I'm like, nothing, mate, I just wanna to talk to you. I just said, look, there's ways that unintentionally I've spoken harshly and I've spoken things in your life and I've done this because I've got my own brokenness, but God's healing me and I wanna pass healing onto you, not blessing. So will you forgive me? That was amazing. He got up and he said, I forgive you, Dad. And he hugged me and it was a powerful moment. Now, my daughter, who from birth has been spoiled with nothing but blessing, who I have consciously never cursed as far as I know. I just sat her down and I said, Haley, I wanted to sit down and I just wanna say to you that if I, and she goes, Dad, let me guess, you love me unconditionally. Let me guess, there's nothing I can do for you to make me any more or any less. I get it. It's like, one out of three. We do contain the power of life and death in our tongue. We do. What are you speaking into the lives of others? Some people you get around and they just build you up. And other people, they're just a beat down to be around. Christians are called to build one another up. We get good at blessing people by what we speak into their lives. The second thing we, we do is we learn to notice people. There is so much blessing in being seen. You know, why I'm, you know why I'm standing before you today, which is kind of bizarre to just be here in England when I live in America, but I'm from Australia. I'm here today because when I was, uh, when I was a brand new Christian, I was 17 years old, I was at a youth camp and they had testimony time. You know testimony time? So I'm sitting up the back and they say, okay, we're gonna open the pulpit and it's like, come to your testimony. And my heart just starts going boom, boom. And I'm like, I think that means I should say something. And right as I go to put my hands in my chair to stand up, the youth pastor says, John Tyson, why don't you come and share what God's done in your life? So I'm like, okay. So I come up the front. And uh, I just, I share in some, some impassioned manner. Jesus has changed me. The youth pastor just, just says, okay, guys, folks, I just wanna pause for a moment right now. I wanna mark this moment. I noticed that when John shared his testimony, something happened in this room. And you know what it was? Teenagers listened to him. And so John, I just wanna mark out that there could be the call of God in your life to teach God's word. So I just wanna pray for you right now. So Father, bless whatever you've got for John. Amen, boom. So I'm here today. That thought had never entered my head. And then someone so spoke my destiny into being because they noticed something very, very small. A youth retreat with a high school dropout from a meat factory who gave his testimony and someone says, I see potential in the kingdom of God. I noticed that in you. There's so much power in notice. Uh, I was at an event once where I, I heard um, Bob Goff, who I'm sure you've heard of because he's crazy. And uh, he told this story about noticing that has just shaken me. And I was like, if only Christians could live like this. He tells this story where the more famous he got in Christian circles, the better the cars were that they came to pick him up. <laughs> so they started off and it's like some kid, you know, just got his L plates or P plates or whatever. And it's filled with, you know, chip, whatever, you know, just rubbish. And then they send, you know, the, the youth pastor and then the associate pastor and then the senior pastor. And this one time they sent him a limo. 
So he shows up and he's like, okay, how are we doing now? You know, so this limo's in front of him. And uh, he gets in the limo and he's, you know, he's a, kind of a, a, a magic guy. And he's driving in the limo and he's like, ah, oh, this, doesn't, this doesn't feel right. So he starts talking to the guy who's driving the limo and he says, oh, opens the thing. Yo, man, what's up? How are you doing in there? Hey, uh, tell me about your life. So he starts this conversation with the guy and the guy's just chatting and he goes, he goes, hey, oh, quick, can you just pull the car over, mate? And so the guy pulls the car over and Bob Goff gets out and goes to the door and he says to him, hey, listen, um, I've just been listening to your story. You know, you're trying to provide for your family here and you're working this, this job and you're just hustling, doing whatever it takes. And, you know, I just realized that you, you should be driving in this limo because you're the one that is a celebrity in your world. And so he goes, you ever been in the back of this thing? He's like, no, no, it's against company policy. He goes, look, don't worry, man, I'm a lawyer. It's all good. So <laughs> Bob Goff put him in the back of the limo and then drove the limo to the hotel himself. And I don't know if you know Bob Goff, he carries homemade medals, he makes medals around to pin on people's chests. And he pins a medal on this chest and says, you're a hero to your family, thank you for serving me today. Now, let me ask you a question. Ask that guy, what are Christians like? And what do you think his response is gonna be? He's like, those are the people that put me in the back of a limo who hear my story and then reward me. What an amazing thing. Who, who around you are you just not noticing? How much possibility is around you but you're just not calling it out? And you may be sinning, not by cursing, but you may be sinning by withholding blessing. Many people will be wounded by with blessing withheld from their life. And then lastly, the last way that I believe we get really, really good at blessing other people, it's not just by what we say, it's not just by noticing people, it's by empowering others, it's by creating space for God's intentions and favor to be realized in their lives. I wanna give you an example of this because, and it, it could apply in the church, but I wanna use the university. I want you to imagine that there's a professor, a tenured professor, I don't know if you have Tenure? Do you have tenured professor? Great school, great professor. We'll just keep it at that. And this is a professor, been teaching there 40 years, and he's the favorite professor. He teaches the class that you can't get into unless you book early, and that there's a waiting list to get into his class, and they, they break the fire codes, and people are sitting in the, the aisles to listen to his classes, and he's brilliant, but oh gosh, he's insecure, prideful worked his whole life to attain this level of accomplishment. And then his world is rocked because story comes out that a really sharp, young PhD is gonna come and be an associate professor. And someone said, did you see his TED talk? And he got online and he watched it and as he watched it, his world came tumbling down because he realized that guy is better than I'll ever be. And that guy's coming into my department and he's gonna teach the same topics as me. So you can imagine that first meeting in the university staff room where the young guy walks in and he doesn't know what to expect and the old guy comes up to him and he says, hey, how are you? I saw your talk on TED. Do you think it's appropriate for professors to be doing TED talks? Little common, isn't it? By the way, I've been here for 40 years. This place is riddled with red tape and bureaucracy, so good luck. That is a curse. But this is what it looks like to bless someone. You imagine this young guy comes in and the older professor comes up and says, hey man, I saw that TED talk. Oh, hello doctor. Uh, I saw that TED talk that you gave. Honestly, that was incredible. It is so refreshing to see our ideas make it out of the academy into the broader culture. By the way, 
that little uh, pin you wore on your tie. Love that, very strong. <laughs> now look, I've been teaching here for 40 years and I want you to know this place is riddled with bureaucracy and red tape. And I know that you know coming in that I'm the number one professor and I have the largest classes. But I also want you to know that I believe you're the future of this institution. So I will use my influence to block you from the unnecessary red tape. And I want you to know when your classes begin to fill up because you're brilliant, I will not be threatened, I will bless you. Can you imagine the difference of experience of what would happen? Well, let's transfer that to the church. Young leaders coming up. The first time I preached at a particular church, I found on Easter, they gave me the Easter talk. I was a youth pastor. I found this one Easter illustration on the internet that was so good, it's never been surpassed. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Don't email me, I'm keeping it for myself. <laughs> so I'm giving this like okay talk and then I drop this illustration at the end and everybody's just like, oh, oh, oh the resurrection! It just went so well. And then I sat in the staff meeting while the senior pastor's wife made sure that every single person knew that John never really knew how to teach and that her husband had to work with John for months and months and months to get him that content to be able to share that illustration and it was all her husband's idea. And I remember just sitting there feeling like, oh gosh, what have I done wrong? I guess my gifts aren't welcome here. Different church, another Easter, pastor who believes in me. And what does he say? John, I've been listening to the youth talks, man. I think you're ready for Easter. And so he clears the way for me. And when I get done, he writes me a card and gives me a gift to take my, uh, voucher to take my wife out for dinner. And he just says, you killed it, you killed it. Creating space, making room blocking the drama and dysfunction so others can run behind you, releasing and empowering others to live in the blessing of God. So I close with asking two questions. Do you need blessing? Is there an unblessed area of your life? In your spirit, is there a wound in there somewhere? Is the Holy Spirit today against your will? You're sitting there and you feel the Holy Spirit hovering that wound and he wants to go into that wound and pull out what is broken in there. Is there a wound in your life? You can have freedom from it. You can find healing. It can become a scar that is used to tell a story and minister to other people. Living flesh by God's grace can be put into your wound and you can be healed. Or who do you need to bless? Maybe the highlight of this conference will be you going and calling your son and daughter and speaking blessing over them and asking forgiveness. Or maybe it's gonna be you at the Holiday Inn here in Nottingham getting an awkward bucket of water and sitting your wife down on the foot of the bed and washing her feet and asking for forgiveness because of how you've spoken over her. There's so much power in blessing. We are called by God to unleash blessing wherever we go. So randomly, 
I'm just checking Instagram one day and I get a text message from the leader who wounded me when I was 19. And they just said, John, I've been watching your ministry from afar. I'm so proud of you. It is obvious that God's hand is on you and it's a joy to see you thriving spiritually. And I felt, I felt so much peace flood my soul. You can give that gift to people. You can close out loops and you can heal wounds by going back and releasing blessing where there was a curse. So my call to you, Vineyard Churches, UK and Ireland, be a force of blessing in the world. Wherever you go, let's make that Christmas carol come true. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, that's how far he comes to bring blessing. So I just wanna close by praying a prayer of blessing over you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this beautiful image of Jesus with his hands raised, blessing his disciples. Father, we just stand here right now and we delight in your blessing. Thank you for your favor, for your purposes, for what you wanna release in and through us. Father, I pray for my brother and sisters, my brothers and sisters who are here, Lord. Heal any wounds. Touch their tongues to speak blessing. Open their eyes to see people, to release destinies, Lord God. And Father, I just pray that they will clear the way for whoever's coming behind to be able to run with all of their might for their purposes at this time of history. So I speak your favor, your life, the intentions and blessings of God over this entire movement for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.